0: Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. As a mom of four kids in New York City and a writer myself, I know all too well how short everyone is on time, so I'm here to help. I'm going to interview authors and writers of all types about their work, especially as it relates to parenting and family issues. Hopefully you can listen while doing 8 million other things and fall in love with these talented scribes and their fantastic books, essays and songs like I have. Plus get some tips on surviving parenthood. For more about me, you can check out my essays at zibbyowens.com. Please subscribe, subscribe, subscribe to moms. Don't have time to read books. And if you can leave a five-star rating or a comment, I'm here today with Jennifer Wallace. Ginny is an award-winning journalist and TV commentator. A regular contributor to The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and many women's magazines, Ginny got her start as an editor at Doubleday Books and moved on to being a journalist for CBS 60 Minutes. Jenny speaks eloquently about her pieces and hot topics in parenting, lifestyle, technology, and more on TV shows like CBS This Morning and others. Her tagline is, reporting research-backed advice for better living. She lives here in New York City with her husband and three kids. Welcome, Jenny. Hi, Zimmy. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Um, I loved your article in the Wall Street Journal last weekend. It was published May the, in the May 5th, 6th, 2018 Uh, In fact, I was reading the paper in the car with my husband and was halfway through before I realized it was actually your article, the one that we were about (laughs) to talk about, Um, but I was loving it. The article is titled The Teenage Social Media Trap, subtitled Adolescents Increasingly Measure and Manage Social Success Online and It May Be Taking a Toll on Their Mental Health. So, tell us, how so? Well,
1: so, uh, when I first was looking into this article, um, I honestly was a little naive. I've been reading a lot about the research, and, you know, it's very mixed. The research that's that's out there now, it's very mixed. There are benefits, uh, there are also uh, possibly some really serious negatives. So, I was looking into it, and I, I, my kids are not really on social media yet. They're tweens. About to turn thirteen, and um, I thought that social media was this virtual place for kids to hang out. You know, sort of the way I use Facebook. I just kind of assumed everybody did. And then I started looking into this and reading the new studies, and there are a lot of new studies, co- you know, coming out. And it's actually very hard for researchers to do the studies, get them published in a timely way, because social media changes so much so quickly. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, I was looking at this, and I was realizing that the way kids are using social media today is what one researcher calls it, it's transforming the landscape of peer interactions. So we used to be able to go home after a long day at school trying on our different selves and trying to be somebody in the lunchroom and someone else in the English classroom, and then we could go home and sort of be our, for me, like my dork self. I could <laughs> sit at the <laughs> I'm kitchen <sure> table. that's <laughs> not true. <laughs> my parents didn't judge me. I could be cerebral, and I, you know, and I could just kind of study in my room. And now these kids, the, the experts I interviewed, point out they don't have this. They go home, and what Rachel Simmons, she's um, a leadership expert up at Smith College, and she has a great book out, um, what she calls it is a uh, second shift. The kids come home, particularly adolescent girls, come home after school, and they are spending up to six hours on social media, managing their accounts, making their image sort of this crystal clean, perfect image of the perfect student, the perfect girlfriend, the perfect friend, and it's exhausting, and it's anxiety provoking. And so the research is coming out and it's suggesting that overuse can be really detrimental.
0: I bet. I mean, yeah. first of all, who has six hours after school? Well, how so are what they they getting they're doing homework done. Is well,
1: like, what they're doing is the six hours is measured by multitasking. Okay. So I mean, this is like a whole nother level. But kids are doing their homework and their phone is next to them, and they are going in and out of homework, in and out of oh activities, and uh, so there are also studies looking at that at how uh, divided their, their attention is. Uh, but that's where the six hours adds up. So it's 15 minutes, you know, on the bus, it's, it's, uh, between classes, et cetera. I feel like for me, it was
0: 90210 like, on my <laughs> tiny little TV, like once a week. And otherwise yes. I had like nothing and nothing to distract me back then. Um, I like in your article though you offer some social media benefits, and I feel like most people just gloss right over any any benefit to this because um, the reports are mostly negative, And you cite some benefits as building a deeper connection with friends and having a low stakes way to communicate with peers. Do you see any other benefits, and do you think they're worth the costs?
1: Um, so there are, there are definitely benefits. There are benefits, um, partic- you know the Pew Research and Common Sense Media have done these great reports. And what they find is that kids who are really sort of healthy socially in real life can manage better on social media. So these healthy connections that they have in real life, it can translate into social media. Keeping in touch with friends if they need social support in the moment to complain about a parent or... A loss oh, or great. something like that. No, <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, so, but the the real risk is for the kids who are struggling socially in real life, and also for kids who overuse it. So there are benefits, and there are benefits, particularly for kids who feel like, like they don't have other people they can identify with at school, if they're gay, um, if they're transgender, that these online communities can really offer really important support. So there are definite social benefits. And my 12-year-old son said I'd better find them when he found out I was writing this article. <laughs> he said, please, all of my friends' parents will read it, and they will take it away from us to find the benefits. <laughs> so I did. Um,
0: the most concerning part of your article to me, at least as a mom, is that the study you cite that found adolescents who were more into digital status seeking were more likely to engage in substance abuse and increased number of sexual numbers of sexual partners a year later. Here's my question. Could it just be that the kids who are more into social media were already going to be those ones who are more into sex, drugs, and rock and roll later? I mean, maybe the link isn't causal. It's just correlated.
1: Yes. So it's not, so we don't know yet um, what we, what they have found is a strong association. So the kids who are, um, doing these status seeking behaviors in real life, like, uh, drinking or, uh, smoking pot or smoking cigarettes, I don't even know if kids do that anymore, vaping or whatever they do now, um, that they are also more likely to be the kids online seeking the status so, there is definitely um, what you're pointing out, which is the link that if you're a kid who really cares about status, you're going to care in real life just as much as you do online.
0: Right, so maybe the, the social media isn't that bad.
1: Well, maybe we it's don't not know. Causing so, we no, we, I, we don't know that it's causing it. One researcher, when I asked them this question, so these, again, this study was uh, an, a strong association, not necessarily a cause. Um, And the researcher I spoke with, I said to her, you know, is there something about the idea with social media that kids who might not be popular can sit there and study what the popular kids are doing? Mm. And she said, yes. She said the popular kids are posting on their Instagram or their Finstagram, which I didn't get into in the article, but their fake Instagrams, um, which is for their, you know, uh, stuff that they don't allow their parents or colleges to look at. Instagram accounts, and they're there smoking pot and they're there smoking cigarettes and they're having suggestive photos. And that kids, it's sort of a way for kids to study that bad behavior and to want to emulate it to be popular. So that's a little scary. And people are looking into that now. Okay. And this digital status seeking, what do you exactly mean by that? So digital status seeking is kids who, um, who, uh, Try to get more likes who work very hard to get uh, good comments. So to, who are looking for these great follow versus follower ratios. So you want to have more followers than people that you follow. So all of these kind of status indicators that we see on Facebook and Instagram, um, those are the kids who are actively seeking it. And some of the things that they do, according to another study, are uh, deceptive. They buy likes they, girl, another study found that girls will literally tell friends, please go on and like what I just posted. And part of an adolescent girl's relationship with their friends involves this um, uh, nurturing their friends online as well. So, commenting if you look on an adolescent's photo and you see the comments, many of the comments say the same thing you're gorgeous, you look amazing. That That's now part of being a good friend is hmm. being a good friend on social media and publicly. Wow, it's a lot of work to keep that up. I'm glad all, I wasn't a kid. Me too. When it's a lot of work.
0: Um, what do you think about this for grownups? I mean, we all like I yeah try to post and promote the podcast and whatever yes. else. What do you, do you think it has negative effects for us? No, or are we spare. I
1: mean, well, I think it depends on us. Um, I think using it for work is amazing and what you have to do today. Um, And I think the way you use it. So just like with the kids, the researchers say um, the way kids use social media. So the conversation we should be having with our kids is maybe the conversation we should be having with ourselves, too, which is are we using it to connect with people Mm -hmm. or are we using it to socially compare ourselves? And when we log on, are we feeling better or are we feeling worse about ourselves and why? And so these are conversations that I'm having with my kids now because I know that the question is going to be can I go on social media? And my son, who's about to turn 13, I did get him an Instagram account, um, and we have a lot of rules around it. He's only posted twice, um, and I've explained all the research and the downsides of it. And so we've brought up these actually really interesting conversations about social comparison and the need to feel validated and how this is really exacerbated in adolescence and why. It's because... Um, you know, kids are sort of developing their self-worth and their, se- and their identity now, yeah. um, and the way they do that is by socially comparing themselves, and that this is really ripe, and uh, we need to have these conversations at home, too.
0: So funny way back when, when I was in college, I was a psychology major. I did a whole study for my senior project on the application of social comparison theory to cool. eating disorders. Yes, and it found. And I wonder if this applies now to eating disorders as well. I mean, how could it not? But the people who compared themselves more to others um, had a much higher, more had a higher likelihood of them developing eating disorders and depression and all sorts of other yeah. things. Somehow, and- like looking to others, and now with Instagram and all these accounts, it must be. Yeah.
1: Here's the thing though, so you're not only comparing yourself like you would in real life with somebody else, you're comparing somebody who used a computer program to thin their body out, to give themselves a digital nose job, to clear away all the acne. So not only are adolescents comparing themselves to their peers as they always have, now they have to compare themselves to their airbrushed I peers. Like it. Yeah. So we used to be able to say, oh, just the models did that. And oh, right. And we could point it out in an advertising and we could show our kids. But now, I mean, a friend of mine pulled me over when I was talking about this article and said, look at what uh, my friend's, my daughter's friend is doing. She said, she looks nothing like this in real life. And her Instagram account is filled with airbrushed, stretched out, like the body doesn't even look normal, it's so stretched out, photos. And so that's what our kids are going home and looking at.
0: Wow. And not only that, but then seeing their friends at parties or doing things without them, too, is so... Oh, okay.
1: And it's hard for adults. I mean, I just I came home one night from a
0: really fun night out with my husband and friends, but then there was a picture on Instagram of like four other moms who I know all at dinner, and I was like, oh my gosh, I wasn't invited. Or, I couldn't even have gone, but I was all of a sudden feeling so left out, and I was like, this must be what kids are feeling all yes. the time. It's not rational,
1: but... No. There it is, anyway. And what's happening is when when kids go on after school and they're seeing, you know, who went to Starbucks together or whatever it is, it's distracting them from being able to do their homework. I'm sure. So, you know, it's, there are, so one of the experts, I, I didn't have room in the article to, to put this in, but one of the ex- experts I spoke to said, it's really important to teach kids when is a healthy time and when is not a healthy time to log in. So if you're taking a study break, logging in and seeing... You know, your friend's doing fun things that you didn't do or a girl in a bikini that you know is going to set you off. Instead, go walk the dog. Take a shower. Do healthier things to reboot versus things that are going to drain you, like going on social media when you're a little bit vulnerable.
0: That's a really good tip. What mm. other what other tips can we do to help kids? I mean, we this? have to
1: have these conversations. We also have to keep in mind that one of the studies that I looked at found that kids who are active on social media at age 10 are more prone to having, um, you know, uh, poor well-being at age 15. Yeah. And we have to remember, there are rules when it comes to social media. You have to be 13. And this is a conversation I had with my kids, and I, you know, broke it. I let him go on a few months before he turned 13. With my daughter, um, I'm gonna have the conversations with her, I'm gonna hand her this article. <laughs> And I'm going to say, here's what you know. Here's what the research. It's not mommy. Here's what the research is showing. This is why they're saying wait until 13. And actually, parents are trying to wait um, until the kids are a lot older. But the conversations we should be having with our kids is how are you using social media? Are you using it to connect in a healthy way, or are you using it for social comparison? And that's you know something you really have to limit, especially on places like social media.
0: So in your in your article, you had said that the people who spend more, the girls who spend more time on social media at age 10 end up having a higher likelihood of developing social and emotional issues by age 15. Yeah. Do you think those kids were predisposed to already having those issues when they got older?
1: So I asked that to the researcher, um, and what she said was, we don't know. Okay. um, Because of the way they collected the data, but she said, girls who are 10 years old logging on between one and three hours, those are a unique group of girls. So already, I mean, imagine your 10-year-old going online an hour to three hours a day on social media. That's extreme for a 10-year-old. There are other things that 10-year-olds should be doing. And, and what I would say to parents and what I say to myself when I um, think about our social media use and our electronic use is what else should my, could my kids be doing right now? Yep. So in the one hour that they're on social media or the three What skill are they not learning? Hmm. How are they not becoming the readers that I would love them to be? Um, How are they not developing, you know, in real life relationships with friends or practicing an instrument or whatever it is? I think this extra time on electronics and social media, a good friend of mine said to me when my kids were younger, she said it will turn them into other people, different people than you want them to be. And so I keep that in mind whenever I want to take the easy way out and I'm tired and I want to stick up them in front of a show. I remember her words, which is, you do that consistently, they turn into different people. Okay, scary. <laughs> I know. Okay, I know. You're scared. Now I feel so bad. I for remind my time myself. When I, No, I think it's just important for us as parents to periodically revisit our rules. Around electronics. Oh, and one expert said to me, um, Rachel Simmons, said, um, if your kids are okay with your social media policy, you're doing something wrong. So that's another thing that I keep in my head. If they're not resistant to my rules, then my rules aren't tight enough. Interesting. So it's a good litmus test.
0: (laughs) I actually, I hate to admit this, I tried letting my kids go on Instagram and getting accounts, and after maybe two weeks I shut it down yeah. I was like this is not good this was a mistake yeah. forget it and they responded very differently I think that's the other thing with this whole debate over screen time which I don't want to really get into but I think it really depends on the kid I think some kids are so susceptible to getting sucked into this mm-hmm. vortex of screens whereas other kids can you know, look at a screen and then go off and go back yes. to reading and other kids it's really hard for them it is. and you don't necessarily know what kind of kid you have until they get exposed to it so I think that's
1: that's right, and one of the experts said to me about social media specifically um, that adults have a hard time regulating themselves yeah. with their smartphones. Kids don't know how to regulate. So it's not like your kids should be doing a better job. It's your job as a parent at this age, at 10, 11, 12, to regulate for them. They can't do it, and adults sometimes can't do it. Right. So just remember that. Yeah.
0: And modeling, too, right? Uh, yeah. not being on our devices totally. is another way to help. Absolutely. Um so let's talk a little more about you and your career, because okay. I'm so interested to how you went from you know, college to here, basically, from your, uh, your bio. Um, so you started after college as an editorial assistant at Doubleday, and now you're an award-winning journalist and write for some of the best publications in the country. How, how did this happen?
1: So uh, I loved my time at Doubleday. Um, I love books. But I'd always had this uh, love of news, and I really like something that's fast-paced, and I love adrenaline, and I love a little bit of stress in my life. Um, So I switched over from books to 60 Minutes and uh, started at the bottom as an assistant to the story editor there. Um, And it was through her that I learned uh, what a story was. And I was lucky enough to be at 60 Minutes when all of the greats were there. Not that they aren't all great today. They still are. But when... um, Bradley was there. I worked as one of Morley Safer's producers. Um, Mike Wallace was there. And it was Don Hewitt, who was the uh, founder, yeah. uh, I think you might know him, yeah. of, uh, of 60 Minutes and sort of the news magazine format. And um, so I worked my way from the bottom. And I used to go in at uh, 7 a.m. I was the only one, 60 Minutes. The producers work late into the night but don't show up at 7 a.m. And I would read 30 to 40 um, local newspapers from around the country and look for stories. And so reading for hours every day for years uh, helped me sort of develop into a journalist. And um, I didn't go to journalism school. Actually, most people at 60 Minutes don't go to journalism school. Um, But I was able to just kind of, you know, learn at the foot of Morley Safer. Who? Or at the knee? Where do you live? <laughs> at the knee? I
0: don't
1: know. He was a giant. So no, no, it he was great. Kinda, It kind of <laughs> felt like at his feet. Um, but he taught me how to, how to write for TV. And, and as a journalist, he was an incredible writer. Oh my gosh. I would go in there um, and he would work in, with one of those old typewriters. And he would sit there, smoke a cigarette, look out the window, Illegally smoke a cigarette because you weren't allowed to smoke in the building, <laughs> and, and would hammer out the most vivid prose. Um, and he was a risk taker when it came to writing, and he he taught me how to be a risk taker too that way.
0: You had mentioned earlier that the importance of knowing your audience when you're writing. Yeah. Did you learn that there as well? I learned
1: that there. So Don Hewitt used to walk down the hall, um, and uh, when somebody would pitch a story or pit or write a script, he would say. I don't know, he would have a name of someone like in Kansas. Dorothy in Kansas is saying, what the heck are they saying on 60 Minutes? He said, you need to know what your audience knows, who they are, and what 60 Minutes does so beautifully is that they know that their audience might not know about the subject before they um, are introduced to it on Sunday nights, but they never dumb it down. So they make it truly accessible, but in a way that assumes you're smart, and I just, that is a really delicate balance that I learned from them. It, I think it's the exact way to write. It, assume that people don't know it, but assume they're smarter. So
0: everything that goes on air there is pre-written? They don't just...
1: Oh, yeah. So every, so the, the process of 16 minutes is incredible. I mean, they, they allow for weeks and months and uh, several months of investigation, and the uh, questions are written, and the correspondent gets involved and rewrites them into their voice. And then the scripts are written, and the, and the correspondent, again, digs in and makes the script even better. And then they're screened um, by a fresh set of eyes, the executive producer and other senior producers. And you get feedback there from someone who's never who didn't do any of the interviews and didn't know anything. And then what makes 60 Minutes unique, I think, maybe not, it was the only news magazine show I worked for, is that there's also someone fact-checking everything that's in the script and reading every interview and making sure that what you're putting on air is exactly what that person intended and so I also learned as a journalist how to fact check and assume nothing and you know what it also does it makes me assume nothing about what I know so everything I know I fact check myself I'm like really is that assumption true and how did I come to it and so um anyway it taught me really how to be a journalist it was incredible almost 10 years I was there.
0: And then you eventually, now you're this TV commentator. You go on to all these shows and, you know, you're the resident expert. Did, starting at 60 Minutes, whet your appetite for that on-air role? I
1: never thought about it. Honestly, I had, uh, I love writing, and so that's sort of my passion. And then I went on, uh, actually went on the Today Show for an article I wrote on Real Simple, and some of the senior producers at 60 Minutes who knew me called me in and said, um, you're really CBS. Come on here next time. And so... Uh, You know, I'm I'm lucky enough to go on around uh, some of my articles, and um, I love going on TV. It exercises a totally different part of the brain than writing does. It is thrilling and exciting and... um, I don't know. It's one of the only times I don't think where my kids are and what they're doing. <laughs> you're in the arena and you could be eaten by the lions. And so you're really on your game and it's exciting and fun. And anyway. But you always energizing. seem just
0: so calm, cool, and collected. Like no different than just sitting here chatting with me. Like you seem like you have it, just you just nail it all the time.
1: How well, do you do that? How do I do it? Because I prepare a lot. I prepare and I prepare. And I know for myself what I need, um, my level of comfort. And so, you know, I might seem, and actually when I go on air, I am, you know, I'm at a a level where I feel comfortable talking about it, but I prepare a lot in advance. I am an over prep person. Do you memorize
0: your answers? How do you do do you No, no.
1: My father-in-law, who is um, Chris Wallace on Fox, uh, said to me, do not over-prep, because he knows my propensity to over-prepare. And his advice to me was, prepare enough, but don't over-prepare because then you're not authentic and so i i know exactly how much i have to prep and then i step away from it which makes you you know it yeah. it, it, it you don't want to seem prepared and at CBS, you can never be prepared because Gail King always asks you a question you don't know she's going <laughs> to ask you. <laughs> so,
0: how often do you think you're on air now? Not do you think, but it's often not do you go on? as
1: often um, lately. I've been really focused on a lot more of my writing, so it goes in fits and starts. You know, uh, a year ago, um, I was on a lot more, and then what what happens is I, you're sort of focused on that, and so it takes away from the writing. So for me, it's a, it's been a hard balance. Um, to figure out, because I also have three young kids at home. Right. And I work from home, so um, I realize how precious time is. And so uh, for the last several months, I've really focused on the writing, and I've given myself almost a a deadline a week, so that's been taking up a lot of my
0: time. Wow, one article a week.
1: Yeah, I've been... Working that way. They don't always come out one a week. Right, but you write them. You <laughs> a stock write a And yeah, so, um, yeah, I'm up to it. It's up to the editors when they. Most of my things are not pegged to something timely. Yep. So I'm more an evergreen. Mm-hmm. So when they need the space, they come to me.
0: And how so. did you break into writing for these amazing so,
1: newspapers? Um, and- well, I think my 60 Minutes training gave me the credentials. Um, but I will say that it's the women in my life who brought me up. I, I took time off. took seven years. When my kids were young, we were living in London, and then we moved back, um, and I really missed it. I knew I couldn't go back to 60 Minutes with the, the way my husband works in his travel, um, but I wanted to be a journalist, and I was talking with a friend of mine who's a senior producer at 60 Minutes, and she said, um, she said, okay, the next time we meet for dinner, which is once a month we go out, she said, I want you to come up with three story ideas. And so I did that, and then a month later she said, okay, now I want you to outline one and and bring a pitch the next time we meet. And so she made me accountable, and she's one of my best friends, and she made me accountable to it. And then when I was ready, when I had this sort of, uh, you know, treasure chest of ideas, I reached out to the women in my life who didn't stop working and were now editors-in-chiefs of magazines, senior editors at newspapers, and I said, I just want to go for coffee, and you tell me if these are dumb ideas. And one of the editors I met with was uh, my editor at the Wall Street Journal. And I said, okay, be honest. Like, please, I have to run these by you. And she liked them. And I i mean, they were crazy ideas. My first idea, one of my first ideas for her was um, about how my husband and I give each other uh, year-end reviews. <laughs> and so she was like, oh, my God, I love it. And so anyway, she... Uh, do you
0: really still do that?
1: Yeah, we do it. That's we awesome. do it like on New Year's Eve yeah, or, you know, for together. Uh, but it's like... Fun and casual and lighthearted. Um, and uh, anyway, it was the women in my life. They lifted me up and they said, let's go. You're ready to come back. And so... That's I, so nice. It is nice. And I think it's a story that's not told enough. That women um, are not as competitive as they want us, you know, that other people want us to believe. that. That's. I think that's more of a social construct than it is reality. Wow.
0: Yeah, I've, I sometimes look around and I'm like, I can't believe how much people I started out with have achieved when they don't it's, stop yes right like,
1: yes it's, <laughs> it's incredible a, it's amazing. It's, it is amazing and it is it is thrilling to see yeah and it, I'm so happy for my daughter to see it I always point out like we have a friend in common Yvette yeah and I always I always ref, make sure sh, there's a doctor in front of her name because she is an MD and uh, I want my kids to see women in these various roles I I just saw her, and she was like, I can't believe you're doing all this writing stuff. I was like, are you kidding? You're a doctor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What? Like, I'm doing nothing. You are saving lives and helping adolescents (laughs) and all this stuff. Like, come on. Um, No, it is great to have great role models, especially in the face of, you know, these superficial, you know, the superficial traps on social media. Like, that's really nothing. There's no substance behind that. Like, giving kids, people to actually look up to is a... Uh, Way more powerful, powerful, I would think. But Um, so you had mentioned a couple your original story idea. How do you come up with your other story ideas? Are they from life? Are they
1: so they're from life? They're from friends. I'm a big listener, and so um, like a friend of mine was struggling with um, you know that she felt like she had a favorite child, and she was feeling guilty about it. And so I started looking into it for her, and then I was like, oh wow, like something like seventy or eighty percent of parents have a favorite child and what's that about and what does that mean and what's the research on it and what happens to the other children and what happens to that favorite child and so anyway uh, these ideas sort of start with a spark or another idea I had was about small talk and because I write at home all day I was like missing small talk in my life even though I don't really love small talk and I was like talking a lot to like the guy who was serving my coffee and I was like <laughs> why am I being so needy <laughs> so, so I looked into what is. what are the benefits of, what are we missing when we don't engage in small talk so anyway these are things that i struggle with my friends struggle with and um a lot of them are sort of notes to myself
0: do you have other ones coming out soon or in your repertoire that you haven't been scheduled yet
1: uh yeah i have when i leave here i'm going back to research uh, for the washington post uh the uh surprising benefits of weak ties that we look a lot you know a lot of research focuses on the importance of our family and close friends in um, helping us to be psychologically healthy, but the, there's also uh, a benefit to keeping sort of a diverse friendship portfolio and maintaining weak ties. And so that's what I'm looking into now. I
0: love when people put friendships into business yeah. terms like that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like diversifying
1: d- Diversifying,
0: our our diversifying portfolio. your portfolio of <laughs> friends. OK, great. <laughs> Um, is there a publication you've always wanted to write for but haven't?
1: So uh, The Atlantic Monthly. So I, um, I haven't written for them. I, I love their work, uh, but it overlaps, it overlaps a lot with my Wall Street Journal work, and I love writing for them, so I, <laughs> I always pitch them first. But Atlantic Monthly is definitely one on my list.
0: And going forward, are you... Looking more to do more writing, as you had mentioned, or more TV reporting or writing a book? What do you have in the future? So
1: I'm, I, I have an agent at CIA, and so we're exploring, you know, TV stuff and radio stuff. And um, I have a book agent, even though I don't have a book. <laughs> and uh, so I'm always looking into these things. I realize um, how precious time is, so I really want to be careful in what I sign up for. So I'm taking my time before I dive into anything.
0: And how do you go about getting in all these agents? What does that look like? Um,
1: Well, so I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago on, uh, oh, game theory and parenting, Mm. using game theory. And so an agent approached me, um, and she happens to be at CAA as well. And um, CAA came about, you know, through a mutual connection. I met with them, and they said they'd love to represent me, and so that's how it... So came awesome. about, yeah. It's it's nice. It's nice when you sort of figure out what it is that you love. I mean, the way I got into the writing, specifically these kinds of articles, is that I really am a self help junkie, and this is the kind of stuff I want to know about. And so I think if you figure out what it is, and I've always loved self help books and psychology, even though I was an English major, I think if you figure out and can tap into something that um, you kind of want to be doing anyway and find a way to get paid to do it. I mean, I know everybody gives that advice, but if you kind of dig down and you figure out what are what are the things that would actually benefit me today, like all this stuff that I write about parenting is helping my three kids or t- totally damaging them in a social experiment in my home, but <laughs> <laughs> whatever, I'm doing my best. Um, I think if you could find that little spark that gets your energy flowing um, and that you could devote and you don't mind stealing that time away from your family to do it, and I don't, I don't have guilt about that, um, then that that's something that's sustainable.
0: Do you have any other tips for aspiring writers? That was a great...
1: Um, to read. To read as much as you can and consider that part of your job uh, as a writer. That part of your job is to read X number of minutes or hours a day. Um, there are definitely writers that I admire and I follow and I try to read everything they write and I look at how they structure an article, how they approach a study, um, and now, after writing for five years, I I also am looking at the pieces that are missing from their articles and why they chose. That's the biggest struggle for me as a writer. Is like for this article on teenage social media, I it, it was a thousand word article, and I think I wrote three or four thousand words. So for me, it's what am I? The big struggle is what do I have to leave out? Mm-hmm. And I think as you mature as a writer, that becomes bigger, uh, of bigger importance. What am I not putting in here for my audience? I really, I like to help my audience and the feedback is so good that it's helpful to them. That's what inspires me to get up at 4am, which I often do to write.
0: Oh my gosh. That's when you
1: do it. That's when I do it. Not
0: when they're in school.
1: Um, so I do do it when they're in school, but I often find that there are a lot of commitments. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, and uh, so my my time that I know is just my own is four a.m. No. Yeah, four to about seven fifteen. How, and how often do to get do them you up? That? A lot. I would say la- I would say the last three weeks I've been up almost every morning, definitely before five. But when I have a pressing deadline, it's four a.m. And I work. I am my freshest. I am my least critical about my writing at that hour. I am open to new ideas. And what I find the other reason that I find this is that. I've been sort of watching myself as a social experiment on what drains me and um, phone calls and, you know, the little things in my life that I hate doing, like finding shoes on Zappos for my kids and not knowing their size and all of these things, it drains me a little bit of my productivity and it takes away the the space in my brain. And at 4 a.m., none of those things matter. It's just me for three hours on the page. I love it. Wow. Yeah, that's it's my a gift nice to myself. Image. What
0: time do you go to bed?
1: Well, those weeks I go to bed really early. So like how early? Uh, like nine. Okay. With my twelve-year-old, he he lights out at eight thirty, and I um, I read for like a half hour, and then I go to bed like nine nine thirty. I ha- I have to when I get up at four.
0: That's that's some serious discipline there. Well,
1: you know I I am also a, a morning person, well, so I kind of have yeah <laughs> <laughs> But a lot of my friends write at night, but by then I am so drained by the mm-hmm. day that I'm not as productive. If I really three hours that early is like six hours in the day. Wow, that's great to have that self
0: awareness and then to implement it like that. Yeah, I wrote an article on Glamour about it on I'm how sorry. to be more I'm productive.
1: Sorry. I months? No, 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 years ago. <laughs> okay. And ever since then, I've been figuring because you need to know for yourself what is your productive time and what drains you from it. And so... That's
0: literally this book. I was just telling you about...
1: I know. I need to listen um, to that podcast. This, this Charles Duhigg podcast that I just posted, Smarter,
0: Faster, Better, is all about productivity. And Charles was saying even that he picks 20 emails to respond to, and that's about it. Mm. Like, he just... Otherwise, that would be the See, whole... See,
1: that's a very male thing. As a woman, I feel like I have to respond to do I, know, I know. I was sitting there. I am like, how many friends does he have? I know. I'm like, I,
0: that's not an option. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, but just... Thinking about your productivity in such an analytical way, now you're in yeah. the second person in like a week who said this, like, maybe this is the
1: key to success here. Just for me, it is. For me, it's made me extremely productive. But I'm really careful, and I carve it out, and I'm protective of it. And I don't make excuses for when I need to really just disconnect. All right. But then I do respond to everybody's email at night. <laughs> I'm tired. So anyway, if the emails aren't cohesive, you know, coherent, it's because I'm really tired. I was at four. I have this image of like
0: all of these women all Uh, over, not just women, like all over the city in their apartments, like emailing each other, the big moon up in the sky, like none of us making any sense. But anyway, um, well, thank you so much. This has really been, has been eye-opening great. for me, and and motivating, and exciting. And I'm I can't wait to see where your career takes you next. Me too. Thanks, me. So. <laughs> right. Thanks, Jenny. You too. Okay, then. take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you can, leave a five star rating or a comment. Thanks so much. <laughs>